Let's pray. Father, it's good to sing your praises. It's good to come together. And a few hundred voices lifting praise to you. You're worthy of all of that. You're the reigning king over all. Be pleased by our praises. We, we long for them to be like a sweet-smelling incense that rises to you. Somehow it actually blesses you. What a privilege it is to do that. You inhabit praises of your people. You're right here with us today. And as you're here, you tell us to come bring our needs and our requests to you. We do that right now in prayer. Thank you for the privilege of prayer. Lord, we just am aware, aware of a lot of needs, a lot of needs, a lot of needs in our church, some of them serious physical needs, some that got some very difficult news the last week or so, some that are facing some difficult procedures. many that are internally broken, emotionally broken, going through tragedies and pray, God, pray for peace of God to guard their hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. I pray that you would fill them with the knowledge of your will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. I pray that you would fill them with your Holy Spirit to take them through, faithfully through whatever they are encountering. I pray for a powerful witness to go out as they raise up their shield of faith and extinguish the fiery darts of the enemy. Lord. I pray now, Lord, for the preaching of your living word. I'm a broken vessel, sinful, frail, unable to accomplish anything eternal. But you're the God who uses the things that are not. You are the God who uses the weak things of the world to show yourself strong. So it is in that truth that I trust. Send forth your word now in power. Keep me in the background, Christ in the foreground. Save souls here today, Lord, by birthing, planting through the word, faith in Jesus. Transform believers here today in ever-increasing measure into the likeness of your Son through the truths that are disseminated. And we'll give you the glory for it, God. In Christ's name, amen. Maybe seated.
encourage you, if you have your Bibles this morning, that you would turn to the fifth chapter of Romans. Thank you, Cal. Put your finger there. We've got some props here on the stage for you this morning. Um, really a long section of Scripture. It is a passage of Scripture that we have been looking at for several weeks. Real key unit of thought, Romans chapter 5, 12, verse 12 down to verse 21. Up here before you is uh, 12 up through 19. It, I told you as we begin this section, I'm going to say it again, that is there any way to put more light up here? Or maybe this said, huh? There we go. Um, that this passage of Scripture, beginning in verse 12, actually going all the way to end of verse 21, is such an incredible, critical passage of Scripture. Probably one of the most influential passages of Scripture related to just getting some real clear doctrinal understandings of justification and what that means, salvation, what that means. So what I want to do is I want to use this as an introduction and a review as we step into this, and this is a very complicated passage, and so I'm, I'm giving you a visual here so that it hopefully will make sense. It took me hours to pour through this to see this, but it's, it's pretty clear in my mind now. I think it'll be clear to you as I show it to you visually and as you look down uh, in Scripture. So the section begins in Romans 5.12, and Paul begins here with a statement. He says, therefore, just as. I want you to focus on these two words right here, just as. Paul is about to make a comparative statement. He's going to take a part A and then complete it with a part B. He's going to teach you a truth by setting two things beside each other to draw out the truth and highlight what he wants to highlight. So he begins here in verse 12, and he says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin, dot, dot, dot. Side A. And we are now ready and waiting for the conclusion of the thought. Where is the just as comparison that he started with? But what Paul does now is that he pushes pause and he makes a parenthetical statement. He makes a bracketed statement because he wants to further expound one set of words that he had just mentioned, and that's this phrase right here, all sin. He gets to the end of verse 12, he's finished with part A of the comparison, and after having said all sinned, it's as if he says, and I need to take a detour now, and I need to explain what I mean by all sin. And so he does that. So you could put a bracket, if you mark in your Bibles, Underline all sin, put a bracket around verses 13 down to the end of verse 14. Those two verses are the detour that he takes to explain the words all sin. 
And so what he does in that explanation is that he helps to unpack what he really means. It's a little difficult to see in the English. I brought this out when we covered this in verse 12. But when he says all sinned because of Adam, it doesn't mean that Adam, our first father, created in perfect human righteousness, rebelled and sinned against God, and so he marred that perfect nature, and then he developed a sinful nature through that act, and then as our father passed that down to all his subsequent posterity, so that we inherit that sinful nature, and therefore we are liable to sin or have a proclivity to sin, and so we act out on sin, and when we act out on sin, we're condemned and die. That is not what that means. What it means, actually in the Greek, that he bears out in verses 13 and 14 is that we all sinned in Adam's sin. That when Adam sinned, God marked it down that we sinned in that moment as well. And so, what he does in 13 and 14 is he gives some powerful illustrations, some undeniable, easy-to-understand illustration for all of us. He's been talking about the first one, and that is universal sin. I mean, just the fact that everybody is a sinner and they know it. There is serious proof in there that something significant happened right here when Adam sinned. Secondly, he uses this example of death. We know from Scripture that death is a result of sin. And so what he unpacks here in verses 13 and 14 is that there are people that died without ever breaking a known command of God, why did they die? If they didn't sin by breaking a known command of God, because from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, there was no law of God, so people didn't break a direct command of God, as did Adam, whom God had said to him, don't eat of the tree, for when you do, you'll die. But his posterity up to the time of Moses didn't break a direct command And yet they died. Why? If sin is a result, if death is a result of sin, why did they die? Folks, the reason they died is because they sinned in Adam. That's the point he makes. So he uses these two verses to take a detour to prove what he's just said. And that concept we've talked about for two or three weeks about the federal headship are the representative head of Adam and how what he did has so much direct influence over us that we're guilty in him, same condemnation that he received, we receive. So then he comes to the end of verse 14, and he makes a statement saying that Adam was a type of the one to come, referring to Christ. And so guess what the master theologian does? He takes another detour. He says, now I need to explain what this means right here. How is Adam a type of the one who is to come? Well, certainly he's a type in that he has incredible universal impact. His sin became our guilt. Just like Christ's actions have incredible impact. But he doesn't want that 
comparison to be taken too far. I mean, really, that's about where the comparison ends because Adam is anything but Christ, right? So what he does in verses 15, verse 16, and verse 17 is he takes a detour to explain what he means by type of Christ, to clarify. And he shows three contrasts. He shows in verse 15 that Adam lost something in his sin. He lost his human righteousness. He became guilty. And all of us inherited that guilt. But what Christ did is that Christ came to give a gift. And what was his gift? Righteousness. But what Paul shows here is that Christ's gift of righteousness so far exceeded what Adam lost. Christ didn't just bring us back up to the pre-fall level in the garden before sin. He took us infinitely beyond that because he didn't give us a perfect human righteousness. He actually gave us the gift of his own righteousness, a divine righteousness. He shows another comparison in verse 16 to show how the work of Christ superabounded, exceeded for the good what Adam did for the bad. In verse 17, he shows a third comparison. He said, man, Adam, idea is here in 17. Adam was given the job to reign over God's creation. But because of his sin, death reigned over him. He went from reigning to being reigned over and by a cruel taskmaster death. And what he tells us in verse 17 is what Christ did. Is he didn't just take us back to what Adam had before the fall. Oh, no, no, no. He took us so much further because Christ actually makes us reign in him with the kind of reigning that he does. And that's not just on earth. That's forever over all eternity, ruling over angels and principalities with him, co-heirs with Christ. Then he comes to verse 18 and 19. And what he does, does in verse 18, key word here, therefore, as same comparative idea. So what he is doing is he's come back now to the second half of verse 12. And he is going to complete the thought that he started but never finished. He's going to give us the B side of the comparison that he only gave us the A side of here. So I'm going to show that to you. But I want you to see, and I want to put this back over here after the two long detours to make a point. What Paul does in verse 18, instead of just jumping in where he left off here in verse 12, he has taken such a long detour that he feels it necessary, I believe, to repeat what he said in verse 7. He gives the front side of the equation again in different words, and then he completes it. So if we were to put those two verses together, they would read like this. Therefore, 
Just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, dot, 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 long detours. Verse 18, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, just like sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, that's side A, now side B, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. There's the completion of the thought. And then in verse 19, for even greater emphasis, he states the same truth again in different words. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going, to, we're going to zone in here on verses 18 and 19. We're going to try to unpack what he says here, and I want you to understand, first of all, it's a completion of verse 12, the line of thought, and also 18 and 19 are summary statements concluding all of these two long detours that have come in between. As we start, first of all, I want, and I think it'll be helpful, that I redefine a word justification. It's used, it's a word that Paul has been using. It's really been his central theme since he hit chapter 3, verse 20. He's been carrying that forward all along. It's kind of been in the forefront. I want to redefine that because it'll really help to grasp the full weight of what Paul is talking about here. Justification, being made right with God, point out which you're saved. In the act of justification, God is not making you something. God is not producing something in you, a righteousness that is going to be in you of your own self. What God is doing is He is making a declaration. Justification is a declaration made by the God of the universe, the judge of all, when He comes over a life that is a sinner. And when that sinner puts their faith in Jesus Christ, God makes a declarative statement, a legal statement about that person's relationship to his law. And he says, I declare that person to be righteous or right in a right standing with my law not in a wrong standing with my law, not on the side of a lawbreaker, but I declare them to be in a right standing. That's what the word justification means. So with that in your mind, I want to go now to verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. What I want to do here is I notice again, part A is a statement about Adam, 
Part B is a statement about Christ of verse 18. Verse 19, part A is a statement about Adam. Part B is a statement about Christ. I want to take the two statements about Adam and put them together and then take the two statements about Christ and put them together. I believe it'll be more understandable if I do that. So let's put the first two statements about Adam, 18a and 19a up. They say, you just read those. One act of righteous... No, that's, that's the wrong two. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, and then 19, for as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. A and A. First thing I want you to focus in on is this word condemnation. What does that word mean? Let me, let me state it like this. When a person is condemned, what is happening to the person? Is this what is happening? Does it mean that when they are condemned, they are made a sinner? Or does it mean when they're condemned that they are determined to be a sinner? It's the latter. You see, condemnation is like a declaration. Condemnation is a statement about what is already the fact. It doesn't produce something. It just calls something for what it is. So in a person being condemned, they are declared to be a lawbreaker, not made a lawbreaker. Now, what I want you to see here is that condemnation is the antithesis in this verse to the word justification. Just look at verse 18. One trespass led to condemnation. Verse 18b, one act of righteousness leads to justification. So Adam blew it and we were condemned. Christ stayed true and we are justified. So he is setting these two words, condemnation and justification, kind of in an antithetical position with each other. So think about how much more force and clarity then that gives to the definition of justification. Because if condemnation doesn't mean to make someone something, but just declare them to be something in the same way justification isn't God making you something, it is Him declaring you to be something. It is a judicial act of God, legal language, in which he either declares you guilty or he declares you right before his law. Now let's jump into two words in the first part of verse 19. Critical idea here. It's going to seem maybe initially like I'm going to contradict what I just said. Because 19 says, 19 takes the idea of 18 and dives deeper into this mysterious pool of God's salvation. Really plums to a deeper depth. In 19 he says, 
For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. By Adam's disobedience, the many were made sinners. What does that phrase mean, made sinners? The word that Paul uses here in the Greek is a much stronger word than our English equivalent for made. It is a word that means this, to set down in the rank of, to appoint to a particular class. It is a complete identification, a complete association, a identification and association that God makes himself where he sets a person into a specific group or class of people. It is like an appointment by God into a position or into a group. Now the word sinner. Oh, it's so critical, so critical to get a proper understanding of the connection again of our federal headship in Adam or in Christ to understand this structure of this statement right here. Paul said that the many were made, by Adam's disobedience, the many were made sinners. He didn't say the many were made sinful. Sinful is an adjective. Sinner is a noun. He didn't say that because Adam, our forefather, sinned, he passed down to us a sinful nature, gave us the proclivity to sin, the tendency to sin. And so what we do because we have a sinful nature is that we act out on that nature in sin and therefore are condemned and die. That's not what he said. He said, by one man's disobedience, the eating of the fruit in the garden, in that act, we were made a noun. We were made a sinner. Driving the point home again that he has been hitting in every one of these verses about the direct, deep, complete connection that the human race has to Adam. This solidarity, the federal headship, how we are absolutely, completely guilty in Adam. When God looks at us, he sees us as if we committed the sin ourselves. All of the guilt of Adam, all of the condemnation of Adam, all of the sentence and penalty of Adam, just like it was you or I that reached out and took the fruit and took the bite, knowing that God had said, don't even touch it. That's what he means by that phrase that by one act of obedience, the many were made sinners. Strong words. That I want to show you, I don't have time to do this. I want to show you what I think Paul is doing here. And by the way, I have felt like, even maybe to myself, but I've wondered if anybody is going to 
do this here in the, in, in the services as we have been wading through the weighty stuff here. I'm just picturing if Paul was here, it would seem like if he was here face-to-face teaching this, it would seem like about the time he got to verse 19, somebody would jump up and say, okay, Paul, we get the point. I mean, we are not that dense. You have grinded it relentlessly into us. I mean, you're regurgitating it over and over and over again. I mean, the horse is dead. Dismount, right? Because, folks, that is exactly what he is doing here. He is just hammering and hammering and hammering on this. But here is the point. He's not hammering on it to drive home the negative side. That is only a preliminary. That is not not even close to the big idea. It's It's the contrast of the negative that allows the positive to be seen for what it really is. And so, verse by verse, piece by piece, he shows the contrast, the negative in Adam, and what that means for us, and how we are so completely grafted into his guilt and condemnation and sentence. But the point is, The entire illustration is to set forth the truth of who we are in Jesus Christ. And if you know who you are in Adam, you're going to be well prepared to know who you are in Jesus Christ. If you don't understand what happened to you in Adam, you're going to be behind the eight ball in understanding what happens to you in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, with Adam, it was nothing that we did. It was something he did in the garden. I mean... How far removed from us, but yet in God's eyes, it's like we took the fruit ourselves. That's how guilty. So that Paul could say, just as, just as, likewise. You didn't do anything to deserve the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ, but just as you're guilty in Adam. You are forgiven and justified in the Lord Jesus Christ. Just as death got its grip on you, Because of what Adam did, life gets its grip on you because of what Jesus Christ did. Just like Adam, who had reigned, began to be reigned over 
by death. We who were in slavery become the reigners not only of this earth, but of all eternity. You see, the comparison is so consistent. Just as God declared you condemned and guilty, He declares you righteous. Incredible, incredible depth of understanding it gives you to what you have and who you are in Christ if you understand what you had and who you were in Adam. God has chosen to relate to us ere the world began before he ever said, let there be light. In the eternal decrees of the triune God, they decided that we would be judged by a federal head. And depending upon which federal head we were connected to would determine everything about our life here and everything about the life to come. Let me just bring this a little, little closer anyway to a close. Paula's purpose here is not to condemn you and beat you down. It is to lift you up to soaring heights, showing you how you superabound in Christ. I love the way Martin Lloyd-Jones writes about this. Let me just give you a couple of lines of a quote from him. We must not think of our salvation in individualistic, in, in, too, in too individualistic a manner. Not at all. If I am put into Christ, then I was crucified with him. I died with him. I am risen with him. I am in the heavenly places with him. I am in Christ. That is the way to look at it. And as long as we do, our certainty and our assurance can never be shaken. If you are in Christ, that's what all of this is about. That's what justification hinges on. Are you in Christ? If you are, God sees you as having died to sin when Christ died, as having risen to new life, as living out the very righteousness of Christ. If you're in Christ, he views you as he views his very own son. Everything becomes different. Scripture says all things become new. Before, under the federal head of Adam, when you sinned, you know what you sinned against? 
You sinned against the law. You sinned against the taskmaster of the law. When you're in Christ, do you know what you sin against? You sin against love. You sin against love. You're a child if you're in Christ. What should that say to your security? If you're truly a follower of Christ, a believer in Christ, and you sin, do you boot the child out of the family? No! No! Certainly not! I mean, an earthly father and an earthly mother know better than that. What about a heavenly father, a perfect heavenly father who now actually views us as perfect in his son even when we sin? I know that might shake some of you up. But that is the truth of Scripture. If you truly have been declared righteous by God, completely dependent upon what Jesus has done, not on what you have done, then what you do cannot change the declaration. It cannot. Because it's an act of God. completely bound up in the all-sufficiency of the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, I've got some more things I'd like to say. Let me do this really quick. Verse 19 says, related to Christ, so by the act of the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Up here, he said, the one act of righteousness, but he takes the thought deeper in part B, and he refers to the one, the one man's obedience. I want to just unpack that for a minute. It's so incredible. Theologians, when they're talking about the obedience of Christ, they put it in two categories, active obedience and passive obedience. Let me explain that related to Christ. It was active obedience that caused Jesus Christ to willingly leave the throne in heaven to come down to save mankind. It was active obedience there at the Jordan River when he came to be baptized by John, and John said, wait a minute. Not me. I am not worthy to baptize you. And Jesus said, let it be so now to fulfill all righteousness. That was Jesus Christ actively obeying the will of the Father. All through his life, Jesus perfectly fulfilling the law of God, living a perfect life of obedience to every aspect of the law, Jesus was the only one who loved the Father with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength and his neighbor as himself. The only man who ever did that. Active obedience. 
And it was that active obedience, that lifestyle of perfect obedience to the law that enabled Jesus to be the lamb without spot, wrinkle, or any blemish. That it set him up to be the sacrifice who was perfect and could die as a substitute without any sin in himself. Now, passive obedience. Passive obedience refers to the death of Christ and all of the events related to the death of Christ. For example, the Garden of Gethsemane, crying out in agony, knowing what's coming, not the ripping of the flesh from his back, not the spikes through his arms and his feet, not the thorn. What his agony is about is the Father forsaking him when the sin of the world would be placed upon him and the wrath of the Father would be poured out against that sin as if he committed them all. That's what caused the sweat like drops of blood to emode through his pores. But what did he say? Father, if it is possible, let this pass, but... Passive obedience, but not my will. Your will be done. The guards then come, led by the betrayer, to, ir- to arrest Jesus Christ. You know what Jesus could have done in that moment? There's a, one little picture in one of the Gospels that gives us a little glimpse They're looking for Jesus, and they come to the crowd, the, the, the soldiers, the And there was a bunch of soldiers. I've studied that out in the Greek. They are looking for Jesus, and Jesus makes a statement. He says, I am he. And when he said that, like dominoes, there was a release of his power in that statement that knocked them flat on their keisters. But he passively allowed himself to be taken. And where was he taken? He was taken to Caiaphas' courtyard where a mock trial was held where he was falsely accused. How many times had they tried to question him and trick him? And he had so easily, every time, instantly refuted them and defeated them by his profound wisdom. And he could have done the same thing at that moment. But in his passive obedience, he let them do what they would led to Pilate's courtyard, stood before Pilate, a man that did not want to condemn him to death, tried not to condemn him. Oh, certainly Jesus could have acquitted himself before the Roman governor, but instead, as a sheep before his shears was silent, so he did not open his mouth because he knew it was the will of the Father that he would go to the cross and they led him to the cross and they drove the spikes into his flesh and they lifted him up. One of the songwriters wrote these words. He could have called 10,000 angels to destroy the world and set him free, but he didn't. Passive obedience. 
And it was by the act of that one man's obedience that we can be, if we believe in him, placed into his obedience and made righteous. Let me close with two points of application. Hearing the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, preached and apologetically like this can, can bring some resistance or some specific responses. Improper responses. One of them is, wow, man, I want to grab a hold of that because if I can get in and can't get out, I can use it as a license to sin. Or even as some were saying in Paul's day, why don't we just go out and sin? Because when we do, grace just abounds all the more. Doctrine called antinomianism. Do you know that was the result when Paul preached? That's how people, some people took it. Wow, man, we can do anything we want. We just believe in Jesus and we can live like H-E double hockey stick. Folks, those that draw that conclusion, what that tells me is they are not saved. Their heart has not been changed. I think Scripture bears that out. I'll read you a verse in a minute that I think proves that. Here's the other reaction, potential reaction. And folks, this used to be my reaction. Fifteen years ago, if I was sitting where you were sitting and I heard this message, this would have been my reaction. Preaching the gospel like that is going to encourage people not to take their sins seriously. It is going to encourage them to live however they want to live without any pursuit for personal holiness. First John 3.3, 3. here's the answer to both of those objections. Everyone who has, everyone who thus hopes in Christ purifies himself as he is pure. Those who are truly saved are going to be motivated by the unbelievable, astonishing, superabounding grace of God found in Jesus Christ so that they long to keep growing, doing better at becoming more and more pure, more and more holy, more and more like Jesus. So the other point of the application is, please stand. If you are truly in Christ, you are secure. Question is, are you in Christ? Pray with me, Father. Father, I just... 
I just leave it in your hands. Do whatever you want to do now, Lord. Work in hearts however you want to work in hearts. Take the word of God and with it birth faith and grow faith. With it, let it be the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes and the power of God unto transformation into the likeness of Jesus Christ for everyone who believes. If you this morning are making a decision to accept Christ, put your faith in Christ, you just need to talk to him about that. To tell him of your sin and your recognition of that and that you believe that Jesus has made a way, the only way. And it's all about him and not about you. And that you want to receive the free gift of righteousness, his righteousness, that he wants to give you. You want to come to the altar and pray about that? You can or anything else. You got a heavy need on your heart, you can come to pray either side here or where you at, but let's sing a closing song. Thank you.